This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Between science and superstition, there is another world. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hi, I'm Trevor, and welcome to your Boo Crew Podcast, episode 378. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with us. It's amazing to talk to you. Keep those reviews coming over at Apple Podcasts. We are loving the outpouring of love and support. As promised, if you send us something on there, we're going to read your review at the top of an upcoming show, which we will save for when myself, Lauren, and Leo are all together again in the next few weeks. Right now, this week, we're going to have two episodes for you. All sorts of exciting stuff going on in the horror community. First up, an incredibly special guest. His spectacular new film, The Pope's Exorcist, is out this Friday, April 14th at time of release. We welcome Oscar-winning storyteller, Russell Crowe. We crack open the case files of the real-life chief exorcist of the Vatican, Father Gabriele Amort, who performed over 100,000 exorcisms in his lifetime. Russell takes you along on the mysterious and terrifying journey of portraying this fascinating figure. Hear about Russell's personal relationship with the genre and the mechanic style and thought that makes this particular film so unique and unsettling. Episode 378 with Russell Crowe is now slaying. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy studio is an abundantly gifted performer and creator. It is all of us that have been lucky to receive the gifts of his work through the power of his storytelling. His ever-expanding library has helped us to escape to laugh, to love just a bit stronger, to try just a bit harder, and to look at ourselves just a bit longer. He continues to provide this journey through his astonishing ability to fade into characters and build worlds that feel boundless and authentic. The examples are countless. The four-time Oscar winning A Beautiful Mind, three-time Oscar winning Les Miserables, two-time Oscar winners LA Confidential and Master and Commander, a handful including a Gladiator, a Best Actor, and dozens and dozens more. He's worked alongside the stunning imaginations of Ridley Scott, Ron Howard, Darren Aronofsky, and scores of others, films that have been at the heart of the most unforgettable moments in cinematic history. More importantly, stories that have genuinely helped change people's lives. His latest project carries on that legacy of being this poignant architect of the human experience to terrifying proportions. It's based on the real-life case files of Father Gabriele Amort, an Italian Catholic priest and the chief exorcist of the Vatican who performed over 100,000 exorcisms before his passing in 2016. The Pope's Exorcist is an outstanding movie. It's in theaters everywhere April 14th. We are honored to welcome its star, the indelible Russell Crow. Yeah. Good morning. Yeah. How are you doing? And uh, young man, that was a beautiful introduction. Thank you very much. Um, that was very kind. Just thank stating you. the facts here. Just stating the facts. And and thank you so much again for spending some of your time with us and uh, for bringing us along on this adventure. This film is such a fantastic demonstration of the power of telling stories through the lens of horror. We'd love to hear about your first impactful experience with the horror genre as a viewer and how it made you feel. Well, I know I can, you know, I'm not silly, so I pick up that you've got Boo Crew in your title. <laughs> so I imagine that you are quite focused on the genre. I've got some slightly bad news for you. I'm, I don't like horror films. 
it's not my go-to, you know. I uh, I like to sleep deeply at night. And um, because I'm, you know, a certain level of sensitivity, they get under my skin like crazy, you know. Um, the one <laughs> horror film experience that uh, never leaves me, right? I'm 14. I've recently moved from Australia to New Zealand, which feels like I'm going back in time. Sure. Okay? People always talk about coming, Americans come to Australia and they go, it feels like America, but it's the 50s, you know. So it felt like Australia, but the 1920s, you know. Um, it was just like things like public transport would finish at 4.45 in the afternoon on a Sunday. It's like, what? <laughs> you can't even go to a movie on a Sunday night, you know. Anyway, so I went to see The Exorcist. It was not by any means its first uh, showing. It, you know, it came out many years prior. But, you know, back in the day when a movie had such strong word of mouth, they would often, you know, put it back on for another run, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, The Godfather, for example, is another one of those films I saw on a, on a second, third, fourth run. Uh, Papillon saw that on its third run, you know. But here I am in this movie theater. It's jam-packed. There is not an empty seat, right? Very popular situation that The Exorcist is running again. Halfway through the film, the guy who was working as an usher that day thought it was a really funny idea to grab a broom and bang the ceiling of the theater. Oh, no. Every single person in that room just about had a fucking baby. You know what I mean? It was just... We just like like uh, collectively, everybody's like halfway out of their seats. Then to see this grinning character holding the broom at the back of the room, like some American Gothic freaking play, you know. And uh, nobody in that millisecond enjoyed his sense of humor. But here I am, still talking about it all these years later. So it definitely had its effect. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I have to say, I'm you know uh, not a huge horror movie guy, so I probably haven't seen a lot of things that you would reference easily. Since you previously worked with uh, Max von Sydow on, I believe, the Robin Hood movies, did you ever yeah. get to tell him the story about watching The Exorcist for the first time? I did. I did. <laughs> There's a scene one day where we're talking about the Forest Charter, and um, it was quite a big idea that we were trying to get into the film because everybody's heard of the Magna Carta, which is the deal between the king and, you know, the lords. But it seemed like nobody had actually heard that simultaneously um, Richard King Richard had worked on um, a forest charter, which was, you know, basically an agreement between the king and his people and allowing them to, you know, hunt a certain amount of days a year, etc. And um, I just thought it was one of those magnificent things. We'd found this little bit of truth. So we're now trying to shove it into the film and um, – me and uh, Max had the sort of the job of expositionally trying to make that land, you know, lightly in the course of our scene. So we had many, many hours together and I did tell him and he burst out laughing. He just thought it was like, you know, he goes, you know, we sort of where in the film. I said, you know, it's roughly around the middle, I suppose. I don't really exactly remember the scene. And he goes, of all the films, you don't need any extra stimuli. <laughs> That's the one. You know? And interestingly... That uh, we're talking about these two things at the time because Gabriella Gabriella Morth, he went public and said that his favorite film was The Exorcist, and that ended up with William Friedkin then befriending him, and then spending quite a few years coming and going in his life. And he made 
a full-length documentary about the work of uh, Gabriele Amor. Yes. Yeah. An extraordinary documentary is what we've all seen the documentary as well. Just on that note and, and your kind of personal view of the horror genre and your, your experience with it, needing to sleep at night, as we all do, <laughs> the exorcism subgenre of horror ultimately mm-hmm. seems to transcend horror for many people as its legitimacy and mystery very much exists in the history books and in our modern headlines. I, most recently, like over 500,000 people in Italy see an exorcist every year. The Vatican notes a continuing rise for the demand in exorcisms here in the U.S. over the last two decades to the extent they're holding training sessions once a year. And then that documentary you were referencing at the very beginning, he talks to a, a historian and religious scholar named uh, Jeffrey Russell, and he cautions The more you open yourself to thinking about this stuff, the evil, the demonic possession, the more you allow it in. Uh, And as someone like yourself who favors that good night's sleep, how did you deal with the levity of this material and immersing yourself into it, the extent that you had to, to get to this role? Probably the same way that Father Amorth did. You've got to retain your sense of humor. You've got to retain a sense of perspective, you know. And the more I looked into him, and he he was the key for me. You know, because um, I have to tell you, when I read, you know, Chief Exorcist of the Vatican in a script, I thought that was a snappy job title a screenwriter had come up with. I didn't think it was real. Yeah. And then I looked into it. Oh, okay. He was the Chief Exorcist. And then Father Candida was the Chief Exorcist before him and on and on and on back through time. You know, so um, <clears throat> I was I was sort of just grabbed by him, the more I looked into him, the more biographical details I found out uh, about him. And that's when I sort of started talking to the director about, we, we need to put more of her, his personality on, uh, you know, on, on the screen because that's what makes him stand out, you know, where he came from, the things he experienced, who he was as a man, his attitude towards hierarchy and if you're working in something like the Roman Catholic Church you know and you uh, have a you know a fresh and clean perspective on that hierarchy you're probably not going to be the most popular bloke around you know but he was never afraid of saying what was on his mind and some of those things that he would bring up extremely serious you know um, Crimes that had been committed within the Vatican walls, for example, that people wanted to brush under the carpet and he just would not let it go. And that's one of the things that we touch on in the film, you know. Um, and I, I hear that um, the Holy Father has reopened the investigation into one of the things that we allude to. Apparently he made a, an announcement in January that that would be looked into again. So there's a nice little crossover uh, I, I'd like to think that somebody told him that it was coming out in the film, so he better take a, better, a stronger look at it. You know, um, it was his purity of faith and his fundamental belief, I think, that made him successful in the job. But combined with that, you also had this very well documented sense of humour. And if you're dealing with the afflicted all the time, if you're dealing with families of the afflicted, people who are going through these very very dark experiences in their lives, then I can understand why the sword and shield of a purity of belief and a sense of humor would help you get through your, your work life and, and keep you balanced. What was the significance of 1987 in this character's life? Where did you put him in your head emotionally and spiritually at the time? Well, the reason we landed on 87, and we, we did have quite a long conversation about when we should start the film, 
Um, but 87 is, um, he's definitely taken over. He's now the chief exorcist, you know, because he did spend a bit of time working alongside Father Candido before he did take over. So that was important. But it was important also that if we want to really look into this guy's life over a long period of time, then let's start close to the beginning, you know, instead of dropping into 2006 or 2010 or, or something like that. Let's start closer to the beginning. So um, that's what sort of brought about that uh, that date. Um, but, yes, and, you know, um, so from my perspective, from, you know, the perspective of, of the film, um, if we were to get the opportunity to draw this bow longer, you know, we've, we've put him at the beginning of what he's learned, the beginning of what he knows, so there's a long way to go. You know? The Boo Crew will be right back. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world, a world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. The one pope. The only pope. The Exorcist. Warner Brothers presents William Peter Vladdy's The Exorcist. The Exorcist. Directed by William Friedkin. The Exorcist. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Researching uh, Father Gabriel Armorth, what uh, surprised you the most when researching and learning about his life, personality, and legacy? Well, one of the things that really struck me was like hearing from one of his colleagues that he had traveled from Modena in Italy in, into Rome because he believed uh, that he had had a calling from God and he went with his local priest. Um, you know, and, and we're talking the 1940s, so it's not an easy journey necessarily, you know. It's not uh, the biggest of journeys, but it's certainly not easy. Um, he goes into Rome. He had, you know, pre-decided that he was going to go and see the head priest at the Paulists, which is a an order which is all about communication. And at 17, he, he told the head priest that, um, you know, he'd received the calling, and, and the priest said, look, kid, he's 17. What do you know? Come back when you've had a bit of life. You know, so he goes back to the town of Modena. As I said, it's 1942. The Second World War is raging, right? So he finds himself getting caught up in that war. He joins the resistance, fights as a partisan against the fascists. This is a young man who's received a calling to serve God. He now has a gun in his hand and he's shooting to kill. He's shooting to save his own ass. You know, he gets wounded through the course of that conflict, comes out of those war years, and because of what he'd experienced in those war years and what he'd seen the fascist government do to people and how that, you know, irrevocably changed their lives, he goes into law school. He's not going to put up with that, you know, anymore in his life kind of thing, you know. So he studies to become a lawyer. He achieves his degree. He comes out of that and things have slightly shifted. So he starts to work as a journalist because he perceived that's where 
communication was. That's where you could inform people. That's where you could keep that balance of information. So a situation like Mussolini potentially never rises again, you know. And you're talking about, you know, post-Second World War Italian politics as well too. So you're talking about they're changing prime ministers every year and a bit, you know what I mean? Boom, 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 you know. So he still can't shake the calling. He goes back to Rome and he says to the same priest, it's, it's still there. I'm, I'm supposed to be working for God. And this time, that father says, perfect. You've now lived life. You know what to say to people if they're going through darkness. You know what you know it is to be faced with extreme situations. So he then goes to theology school, comes out of theology school. But because he's in the powerless, that's about communication. So he's now a priest, but he produces radio. He produces television. He writes hundreds and hundreds of articles for interfaith magazines. You know, it's not till he's 60 that Father Candido tap, taps him on the shoulder and says, Gabriele, you're to take over from me. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm a journalist, you know? I don't know anything about that stuff. You know, he goes, well, come with me and learn because I've chosen you. And that's when he embarks on the last 36 years of his life and is involved in tens of thousands of exorcism. And, you know, continuously, constantly, you know, has this strength to shine a light back on the church and be critical, you know? So it's, uh, he just, to me, right, he wrote 12 books on his first person experience as an exorcist. You're talking to an actor here. You know, I've been an actor since I was six years old. That's a fucking treasure chest, mate. Sure, Are you yeah. kidding me? You know, I don't care what's on the page, right? But what I'm finding in this is like something I can use. So then it sort of, you know, as I quite often do, I make the job more difficult because now there's a sense of authorship. I, I must add this guy's real personality into what we're doing. You know, I must have moments in here that when I'm talking, I'm talking about something that actually happened definitively in his life, you know. So when you're talking about the overall thematics of the film, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, those thematics, you know, reach into that are coming from him. You know, his first person experience, what it was to survive a war. You know, there's a classic line in the movie, man, where he says, you know, to die in a war is heroic. To survive a war is complex because all of his friends have been killed. They've all been shot, you know. So why did he survive? And they didn't, you know. These things, if you've gone through those experiences, those questions would revolve in your head day after day after day. And, and he you know, came to the point where, like, okay, I can't bring anybody back. I can't carry this survivor's guilt, but I must make sure that my life has meaning. Here's a question that kind of goes into that territory because it's about making him feel real and, and bringing him to life in real time on the screen for us in a way that we totally believe. I kind of equate it to seeing the incarnation of your your new favorite song in physical form with so much nuance going on and make it galvanizing in that moment that even though it's all brand new to the audience, there's something we latch onto almost instantly when it's done well. And you do this through the cadence and, and melody of your speech, 
that conveys so much wisdom and experience and calmness, the way you use your hands when you talk, the way you raise your eyebrows inquisitively at just the right moment, and the way you carry yourself in the physical space as Father Amort. How much of that is calculated homework and rehearsal, and how much of that for you is pure instinct that you let take you over in the moment? Well, it's a combination of those two things, though, isn't it? You know, because you feel yourself full of the imagination, or you feel your imagination full of the information of the character, you know? Um, you know about his backstory, you know about some of the things he's experienced, you know, but there's a sort of, you know, there is an equation between that knowledge and the fact that you're working in this particular medium. So you have to be able to communicate things. So as much as it might be a little bit of a bubble bursting thing for some people, it's all considered you know like the only time i do that gesture to the other priest who's basically dobbed me in and got me into trouble and i give him one of those right but i can't do that in that room so i do it like low down by my knee i say something to him and i just flick it my hand yeah. so that priest knows i'm telling him to fuck off <laughs> <laughs> and the yeah. audience can see it but the, the audience think they've been given a little secret piece of information and they're the only ones that notice it, you know. <laughs> but that's the gig, you know, and the, the gig is to, you know, like you were alluding to, you know, to, to try and make people believe in that person, that no matter what else is happening around, that they might question or whatever the visual aspects of a, a horror film, you want them to believe in the person because if they believe in the person, then they'll stay inside the story. I was really uh, pleasantly surprised to see how much subtle humor there was, even in the darkest moments in the film, uh, you know, what, which was much like the persona of, you know, Father Amor, how he was in real life. Did you get to improvise any of the humor during the filming of the movie? All of that stuff, you know, I don't necessarily discuss all of those sort of things with the director because sometimes you can give them too much information and they don't know how to imagine what you've just said. Mm -hmm. So... You know, you, you do it, you do uh, this and that or what, what have you. If they get it, they get it. If they don't get it, you know, you might explain it then or whatever. Um, but it, it was very clear to me. There was, you know, two things at the core of Amorth, as I think we were talking about, you know, the purity of his faith and his sense of humor. That's what got him through. That's what helped him do his job. So if you didn't have the sense of humor on display, then you're not respecting the man. You're not honoring him, you know. So, um uh, you know, the the gag about the French winning the World Cup, that's an Armorth line. He said that line. Oh, wow. wow. I mean, he said some crazy <laughs> cool stuff, right? At one point in time, he said, you should never do yoga, for yoga requires that you put yourself at the center of the universe. Surely this is a place God should occupy. So just call it stretching. <laughs> so in your spin on that introduce that little cuckoo sound whose idea was that well that's him that was him it's, wow it's in, it's in freaking it's in that docker you'll hear him say it all the time when he believed he felt the presence of the devil right he would do that little sound right but he would also do it as kind of like an an acknowledgement to um 
colleagues or whatever who um, he had an experience with, like, I can't talk to you fully right now because I'm in the middle of this, but if I do this, you'll know I mean that as a warm uh, greeting, you know. Um, but he would do it all the time, man. And uh, that's why I kind of I use it in the, the movie when that table full of cardinals is trying to, you know, get him to voluntarily walk away from his position. Hmm. As he's walking out the door and they're yelling at him, he does that thing. So if people know Amor, it's that kind of like a little subtle joke there that he's basically saying, y in, in your presence <laughs> to the cardinals, I'm feeling the dark side, you know, so... No, I'm not sure how much more time we have here, unfortunately, with you with so many other questions. But one question I really want to make sure we get in is that your interplay between uh, yourself and the child who plays Henry, the very talented mm -hmm. child who plays Henry, uh, Peter yeah. D'Souza Fahoney. Unbelievable. Yeah. And I believe... Dude, you're the first guy who's been able to pronounce his name properly. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I believe it's yeah. just one of his first roles, correct? Very, uh, very first, I believe. Holy yeah. God. He, he was, has he so was, much heavy he lifting, funny. right? Yeah, he really does, man. You know, for a young fella. And, you know, if you can imagine, because they put these red things in his eyes. I've got a day after day, you know, shots over his shoulder on me, and I'm staring into these demonic red eyes. Some of those nights I was like, um, I finished work. I'm just going to go for a walk. <laughs> I might stand on a cliff and feel the breeze coming off the Irish Sea and try and blow that image out of my head. But he was funny, man, because, you know, obviously you, you kind of have a, you know, a close relationship with people when you're, you're working with them. And I just noticed on the days that he was dressed as a normal kid, he just wasn't as effervescent and as available, you know. Mm -hmm. So I just, you know, went up to him one day. Said, "Man, you okay? You good? You right?" He goes, "Yeah." I said, "What's up?" He goes, oh, "I just prefer being the demon." <laughs> <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> that is the best. So, how did it work in the scenes with uh, with you and him? Was he doing uh, his own version of the demon voice uh, at the time? And then the, the great Ralph Ineson, who's a piece of genius casting, by the way, probably the, one of the coolest voices in modern cinema, doing the, the voice of the demon afterwards. Was Ralph there on set uh, experiencing this? No, Ralph, with wasn't, you or no? Ralph wasn't on set. That was sort of like a, something that, that came up afterwards. Um, and I, I would think that Peter... You know, as young as he is as an actor, would probably have the right to be a little miffed because he did exceptionally good work. Exceptionally good work. He was a scary little motherfucker. You know what I mean? When he was <laughs> he doing his it. big speeches where, where everybody in the room was like, I am so uncomfortable right now. Because, um, you know, of course, his makeup too, the smearing his face and like you know, there was so many different stages to it and like there would be blood dripping out of his head and yeah, it was it, it was full on, and he did a, a wonderful job. But obviously, you know, there was probably some sort of clarity issue or something that they they uh, wanted to um, to uh, address. And um, having the opportunity to bring uh, a beautiful voice like Ralph's in is, is probably something that the director didn't want to pass up. Sure, sure. And again, the director Julius Avery. I mean, he's got a an existing horror film that we all love, Overlord, that came out in 2018, uh, multi-award right. winner. And uh, he's applied something so unique 
in terms of his vision to the look and feel and the mechanics of this film it really doesn't look like any horror film that we've ever seen before. It's got beautiful rolling camera shots. It looks like one where you're almost on some sort of a, a tray doing like a 180 spin in one one moment. And it just it has its very own distinct personality. What mm-hmm. was your kind of involvement in that process? Were you aware of this is this is going to look like nothing that anybody's really seen before? Of course. I mean, that's one of the things that um, directors always remark about with me when I'm working with them is like, I think in, in pictures, I think visually and, you know, I've been around cameras a long time and I started when I was six years old. So, you know, it, it's like if you've been doing something that long, obviously, you, you know, hopefully you pick up a few tips, you know, um, but I can generally imagine the, the shot and know what the shot is just by knowing the lens, you know, so if we're using multiple cameras, the first thing I'll do when I walk on set is I'll have a look at what the, the camera move intends to be, and I just ask what the lens is, and then I look at the space and so I know what they're seeing. And, you know, uh, a lot of directors like you to look at the rehearsals and stuff they've shot, but I don't need to because I can, you know, make a very, very accurate call. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know, just by knowing what the, the lens is and, and knowing what the camera movement's going to be. So, yeah, I mean, the Khalid, who was the DP on this man, He's just got this classical sense, you know. If you see where his light source is from all the time, he's, a, you know, obviously heavily influenced by the DP of The Godfather and a few other sure. sort of great films, sure. you know, frame within a frame within a frame, but beautiful, beautiful work, you know. And, and once I was assured of that quality too, it just, you know, it, it, it make, enthuses you more about the job because, you know, I want my work to be full of substance and nuance. And when every other person on the crew wants their work to be full of substance and nuance too, then it's, it's you know, it's great. The a- actual atmosphere on set, and I'm talking about the actual physical atmosphere, was quite difficult, you know. We got a lot of burning fires. We got a lot of smoke. We got a lot of dust. We got, you know, bits and pieces coming through ceilings. So there's styrofoam floating through the air and, and – <laughs> We were working in such a way that we were walking constantly onto freshly painted sets. Oh wow! So you know, by about halfway through the day, it's like you're you're on you're high. You know I mean, <laughs> you've, you've so much paint and so many chemicals. So it was actually quite a difficult shoot. And that in the last few weeks, the hours got really heavy. And then we added like night shoots with rain towers and stuff. So you know, it, it ultimately, uh, as much sort of uh, you know. I, I was having, you know, a pretty good life through it. I played tennis every Sunday with some of the other cast and we'd get back to balance before we went back to work. But ultimately, by the end of the film, I was absolutely exhausted. It just ripped ripped the guts out of me, you know, and I had other responsibilities. But I ended up, you know, I had to go to Rome to finish the shoot and I could feel that I was getting sick, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I sort of like had a pretty low-key period while we were shooting in Rome. And then I was flying home to uh, to Australia, and the first leg of that was going into London, and I just felt it come over me. So I started texting a friend of mine who works at a hotel, asking if there was a room available, and I ended up going into a hotel room. So I was probably texting about 11 o'clock in the morning. By 4 o'clock or something, I'm in that hotel room in bed, and I stayed there for seven days. Oh, wow. I was so sick, man. Yeah, it was it was crazy. Um, uh, in recent Years, I don't ever remember being that sick. And it was some this combination where it kind of felt like COVID, the flu, and gastroenteritis or something all at the same oh, time. It was horrible. just horrible. Oh, yeah. It's terrible. I, I, I literally in bed for seven days. I had no idea a week had passed when I sort of finally went down to the kitchen and made myself a cup of coffee. My girlfriend was like, You know, it's been a week. 
Uh, it was just a blow. <laughs> Unbelievable. The Pope's exorcist flew. I was really curious about the dark, spooky Spanish Abbey in the film. Was that a real castle location or Abbey in Ireland, or was it all interior sets for filming? Um, no, that's a that's a, a physical building. Yeah, that that exists. That's uh, just outside Limerick, uh, the town of Limerick. Um, and so we traveled down there. I think we were in Limerick for four or five days shooting the exteriors of of, of that building. Um, but it was based very much on. You know, there was conversations early on about actually going to Spain, but uh, then they found that um, building, which is kind of called a castle, I think, there, and and it felt like um, it could stand in very well for the the building that they they wanted it to, and it, it was a lot of flexibility, incredible architecture. So that garden and everything that I walk through, where the well is and all that sort of yeah. stuff, that's all existent, you know. So when you, you you get a place like that, and you've got <laughs> so many of the things that you wanted, and the angles of the building are a little bit gothic in the light, and the other way, if you bring the camera up, you what you can see beyond the building, you know, it was all pretty fab. So uh, that's the one they, they they chose to go with. But yeah, it's an actual place. Wow, stunning. Well, Russell, again, thank you so much. We've taken up a more uh, more than enough of your time. Thanks for spending it with us. Thank you for another classic. Certainly the three of us here, our listeners and audiences all over the world appreciate everything you continue to do to enrich our lives by bringing us these stories in your very own unique way. And we appreciate that more than you can ever know. Thank you very much, Boo Crew. It's been a great chat and uh, uh, all the very best. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 378. Special thanks to our guest, Russell Crowe. At time of release, do not miss The Pope's Exorcist in theaters everywhere, April 14th. Production tracks for this one provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, for myself, Trevor, Lauren, and Leo, it is the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at Tales from the Boo Crew. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew, for horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy, for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.